0: Hi, I'm Carla Nappy and this is the New Books Network Seminar. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. I just got off the Skype phone with Tom Van Doren to talk about his new book, Flight Ways, Life and Loss at the Edge of Extinction. This came out just in 2014 with Columbia University Press. And you'll hear me get very excited about this book in the interview to come. I really, really loved it. Um, It's a book that simultaneously is both informed by and also speaks to quite a few disciplines across the arts and the sciences in a way that's really thoughtful, really informed. And really, really rigorous while at the same time being extraordinarily generous and empathetic. So what it does is it brings us into a kind of thoughtful account and a study of and an opening up of ideas of extinction by looking at five distinct groups of birds that are all either extinct or on the way to extinction um, in different ways. So we look here at albatrosses, vultures, penguins, cranes, and crows. In the course of this book, Van Doren weaves in a lot of work on animal studies and also environmental studies or environmental humanities, so the book really becomes a kind of conversation among the case studies, his own ethnographic work, his archival work, and also the contributions that he's bringing in from across these fields and really um, encountering and celebrating in a a way that performs, as you'll hear me say at the end of the interview, uh, a really profound generosity and collegial generosity that I think models the kind of um, attentiveness to relationships and entanglements that the book is all about. So this is a book for you if you're interested in the human and non-human, although the book um, kind of undoes that polar between human and non-human in, I think, a really productive way. It's a book about extinction. Um, it's for you if you know a lot about animal studies, and it's for you if you know nothing about animal studies. It's also a book that's deeply committed to the craft and the power of storytelling. So this is really a book about stories and storytelling as much as it's a book about extinction and flightways and birds. It was really a pleasure to talk with Tom about this, and I deeply, deeply enjoyed the book and um, have been using it and working with it since reading it. So thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoy, and I hope you have a chance to read it. I'm here today to talk with Tom Van Doren about his new book, Flightways. Welcome to the New Books Network Seminar, Tom, and thanks for making time to talk with me today and also for writing an exceptionally amazing book. I loved it. And I'm really excited to talk with you about it today. So welcome.
1: Hi, Carla. Thanks very much. It's great to talk to you too.
0: So let's get started by talking a little bit about how you came to the field and specifically what brought you to work in environmental humanities?
1: Um, Well, I guess I started out as an undergraduate in environmental philosophy or in, in philosophy with an interest in the environment. And there wasn't a lot of environment... Um, going in philosophy departments, uh, well, not in mine anyway. So I, um, I tried to pick up uh, biology and other things like that. And uh, I guess I always remained much more interested in the humanities, but uh, but wanted to to think about environmental issues. So uh, philosophy, I suppose, was my was my grounding. Um, but I was really lucky in that. Um, when I went on to do my PhD at the Australian National University. Um, we had a, a group there called the, the Ecological Humanities Group um, that was really comprised at that stage of um, Debbie Bird-Rose, who's a, a great uh, environmental anthropologist, um, Val Plumwood, who was a, a fantastic ecofeminist philosopher, uh, and Libby Robin, who's an, an environmental historian, um, and, and their students. So uh, it was a, a, an intimate group, but we were exposed to um, to historical, philosophical and uh, Anthropological scholarship on the environment And we were really encouraged to think about um, The connections between our work To think about the kinds of uh, conversations we might have The resources we might draw on um, from those other fields And that really rubbed off on me, I guess uh, And that, I think, has continued to to colour the way that I uh, write The way that I research The way that I think about um, all of these kinds of issues So uh, I guess it was kind of a lucky um, uh, a lucky situation. Um, I, I should also say that I um, was influenced very early on by um, Donna Haraway's work, in particular mm-hmm. feminist STS scholarship, um, and that I think is also is also there in, in all of my work and, and the way that she works through um, questions of, of ethics and politics uh, in relation to um, environmental issues, but but also uh, drawing on. Concrete case studies, so the situatedness of her work that is still able to grapple with really big issues. So, um, I guess that's it's um, how I arrived at, at the particular take that I um, that I have on, on birds and extinction in this book, um, and it's coloured you know, all of my subsequent projects.
0: Great, and you can actually see, or I can see as an, as a reader both the influence of Donna Haraway in in really wonderful ways in the book and also the deep interdisciplinarity that you've described as part of your training that really shapes every part of every chapter. And it's a really wonderful modeling of what can happen by bringing a, a deeply interdisciplinary approach to a study like this. So I think it works really, really well. So, the book that we're talking about today offers us and also implicates us in stories about five groups of birds. And we'll talk about them in turn over the course of our hour together. We have albatrosses, we have vultures in India specifically, little penguins, whooping cranes in North America, and Hawaiian crows. And it tells these stories and again uh, it involves us in these stories as a way to explore and reimagine what where and how extinction is and why that matters. So how did you come to this project, Tom, and how did you come to the decision to write a book-length object devoted to this topic?
1: Well, I, I, I wrote my PhD on um, intellect on intellectual property in plant genetic resources it was one of the main uh, main topics. I was interested more broadly, I guess, in uh, agricultural plant genetic resources and the, the regimes of control and ownership that surround them. But throughout that work, I think what interested me most was the conservation aspects of it—the conservation of. Genetic, plant genetic resources so that got me into thinking about conservation i suppose and I, and I moved from agricultural domains to to broader biodiversity questions um, but i had I had started out wanting to write a book on uh, on extinction more broadly that was going to look at uh, at case studies from across uh, all of the kingdoms of life and um, and take up these kinds of big questions and i guess i just got captivated by birds early on um, so i started out with the indian vultures that are uh, the second chapter in the book and um, from there, I guess I, I, there are a lot of reasons I was captivated by birds. Part of it was that I went and, and relearned a lot of avian biology that I uh, had sort of dabbled in as an undergraduate a little bit and, and never uh, taken up seriously. Um, and I began to, to look more seriously at the ethological literature and a lot of the ecological literature on Um, birds as pollinators and and the other ecological roles they have Uh, and I guess I just got really interested in in birds so it was uh, the book became a lot more tightly focused I guess and I found other avian case studies Um, but I'm not I'm not a birder now and I never never have been Um, so I I guess it's in each case it was the individual story um, that captured me Um, but the the larger project of thinking about extinction and thinking ethnographically and ethically about extinction was something that i really started with uh, deborah bird rose um i don't know how long ago now about eight years ago we uh, started talking about what we were then thinking of as biographies of extinction and what it would mean to tell the to tell the life story if you like of a of a mass um, death, uh, and and to, to web together those kinds of individual stories to say something um, more general about this current period of, of is quite possibly the sixth mass extinction event in Earth's history.
0: So even though there are five major key studies of birds, the book actually opens with a sixth. The introduction opens with the dodo, um, what you call the poster child extinction in a lot of ways. Now, dodos were big flightless birds that lived on Mauritius, and evidence, as you tell us in the introduction, suggests that they may have been extinct already by the end of the 17th century. Now, also, as you tell us here, they've become so iconic in discussions of extinction, in part because of the ways they've been narrativized in written accounts. And this really brings us to one of Um, what I take to be um, the major contributions of and arguments of the book. And this is the connection between extinction and storytelling. So to bring us in here and maybe start um, right at the ground um, and right at the beginning, can you talk a little bit about this commitment to the connection between extinction and storytelling? What do we need to know about that commitment and about that connection right at the beginning now to be able to understand what's going to come next?
1: Okay, <laughs> sorry. Well, um,
0: that's a big question.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, I'm thinking in the book about um, lively storytelling. Um, uh, that's the, the way I try to frame it. So to think about um, stories as um, committed to life, to the living world. So there's there's a, that ethical and political edge from the beginning. Um, but also to think about stories themselves as lively, as as contributors to the to the becoming of the world. So. I wanted to resist that, um, clean distinction between the, the narrated and the, and the actual world. Um, to think about how stories are, uh, technologies for worlding. I think Haraway says at one point somewhere. Um, so, so how they are implicated in the becoming of the world. Um, and in that sense, lively also. Uh, so I guess, Combining those two things, um, the, the point of storytelling is is a much more political one. It's not about um, a kind of s- simple, clean, uh, communicative act. Uh, it's about um, implicating others. Uh, it's a, So how we can uh, tell stories that draw others in, that make others perhaps curious, um, responsible in new kinds of ways, uh, how learning something new about the world, being uh, re into the world in a new way through the experience of, of reading or hearing a story, um, draws us into a different kind of world and makes us yeah, accountable in new kinds of ways. So that's the, the larger project of the book. Um, and then each of those stories is an effort to, um, each of the chapters is an effort to tell a different kind of story that, that draws people in in different ways.
0: Now the book doesn't just expand our notion of where and what and how storytelling is and how we are not just implicated in hearing and experiencing the stories but also being part of those stories. The connection between storytelling and extinction also asks us to re-envision what extinction is and how it is. So can you talk a little bit about that? The, The book really expands our notion of what extinction is beyond simply the death of the last single individual in a group, so um, would you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, I, I was really interested in in entangled the entangled significance of extinction. So, um, part of what again, what the stories enable me to do is to, to draw on the biology and ecology and ethology to try and give a uh, a fleshier sense of of the particular species that I'm writing about, about how they hunt or reproduce, about the, what what that particular way of life. Uh, of that species is uh, to give a, a fuller sense of what is being lost and 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 also um, of why it matters. Uh, but this notion of entangled significance then is is about following those following the threads to think about how species matter to uh, ecosystems. They might matter to a, a particular tree variety that they're a pollinator or a seed disperser for. Uh, Birds might matter for various cultural or religious reasons to different human communities. Uh, so, this notion of entangled significance is about all of the ways that um, that these species are tangled up and significant to um, others. And so, again, this is about uh, thickening up our our notion of of what this species is and why it matters. And so, coming to understand that loss in a, in a new way. Um, so that's, a, I guess, another part of, of what I'm uh, trying to do with with the stories and, and how it is that they're, that I take that they might implicate us in, in extinction in new ways.
0: And this actually really beautifully leads us into the first chapter of the book. Um, in the first chapter, you're here really proposing a way of thinking about species as achievements, as you put it, and you're proposing that we understand a being not just as a sort of a kind, but as a way of life, as a form of life, as a flight way, as you call it, and that's also um, uh, the inspiration for the title of the book. Now, you do this through the case study of black footed albatrosses and Laysan albatrosses that live on Midway Atoll in the North Pacific Ocean. So, to bring us into this chapter and to perhaps illustrate this notion of a flightway and a species as achievement um, through this particular case. Can you talk about the flightway of the albatross as you depict it here in the early part of this chapter?
1: Yeah, the the notion of the flightway, I guess, was, again, trying to get it at two things. Um, the first one was to think about what species are, and I guess in a, in a book about extinction, um, it seemed important to me to, to have a bit of a think about what a, what a species is, what it is that is ending with extinction. Um, and so I was interested, and in, as with all of the chapters in my, in this book, there's uh, an awful lot of um, historical and philosophical research that, that informs my thinking that, but I don't find any way to get into the chapter because I feel that it disrupts the narrative too much. Um, so some of it makes it into footnotes, but most of it disappears, sadly. Um, so I, I got really interested in thinking about um, the history of the species concept or species concepts and uh, and how they've changed um, since Darwin to... It's um, obviously a particularly central figure, so how to think about a, a species not as a kind and certainly not as an eternal kind, um, but rather as uh, as something that's evolving as something that's stretched um, over millions of years um, from a, a, an act of speciation to extinction uh, and something that is evolving and changing over that period. So the, f- the first thing I wanted to do with the notion of flightway was to try and f- convey uh, the, that sense of magnitude of, of uh, a line of movement over millions of years of evolutionary history. And that, but that in a sense, is what a species is. It's a lineage um, that... Uh, that moves, if you like, uh, over these vast periods of time. Uh, But then, as you just said, I wanted to to thicken that up uh, and to think about that not just as a kind of empty empty trajectory but uh, as a way of life that is moving over uh, millions of years, that is evolving and adapting, uh, and that is tangled up with other ways of life in consequential, sometimes co-evolutionary ways. Um, So the flight way was an effort to... um, to think about what a species is, again, in a, in a slightly different way um, that might, again, as with all of the chapters in the book, that might uh, help us to rethink extinction in a slightly different way. And the albatross was really a way into that because of the um, the work that goes into each uh, generation into rearing, to laying eggs and rearing chicks and fledging chicks Um, months and months of work each year uh, that enables one generation to um, bring the next into the world and that again helps us to think about species as something that don't just happen but that are achieved Uh, and all of that that labour that goes into the the production the maintenance uh, of a species in the world is something that we might value and, and come to appreciate. And, and But something that I think is is ultimately impossible to really grasp, the millions and millions of generations um, and that of labour that, that holds something like the albatross in the world that can be undone so quickly with, in this case, the 50, 60 years of industrial fishing and um, plastics and um, um, organochlorines and other kinds of um, toxins in the water that are you know have these really very short histories, 50, 60, 70 years, uh, but that are undoing these kinds of millions of years, year, year histories so quickly.
0: That's right. I mean, I think one of the things that you're just mentioning um, illustrates how, again, deeply interdisciplinary the book is, and I think that's true not just in terms of what goes into it, but what could potentially come out of it. I mean, just in terms of describing species as achievements and invoking the notion of labor, this immediately becomes, at that moment, part of a way of rethinking labor history, right, to make it um, not so distinctly a human kind of a um, historiographical field, which I think itself is really interesting. Um, But you just mentioned the plastics, right, and the pollutants. Now the chapter talks a lot about the presence of plastic objects around and inside the albatrosses, and also talks about the presence of other pollutants like PCBs and DDT. Um, you mentioned that these substances are kinds of hyper objects, um, according to the notion of Timothy Morton, and this is I mentioned that because this is a book that Timothy and I talked about actually a little bit ago um, that I think speaks very nicely to this case. Now, you make a compelling point here for thinking about the very different temporalities that meet at the site of albatross encounter in terms of the daily life of the birds, the future of the species, and the timescales of plastics and other pollutants, which are in some ways immortal. So can you talk a little bit about this issue of temporalities? What's What's crucial for us to understand about the temporality issue here in order for us to understand the work that you're doing in this chapter?
1: Yeah, I, I struggle with, with temporalities. I find them um, difficult to think. Um, and so in many ways this, this chapter was my first foray into, into trying to think um, temporalities in a way that I sort of felt I needed to, to, to think about extinction. Um, and that first chapter was actually one of the last ones, maybe even the last one that I wrote um, and um, a lot of the ways that I was thinking about extinction were coming from um, the work of Michelle Bastian, um, who's at, uh, at the University of Edinburgh and, and she I think is for those who are interested in thinking about temporality I would direct them to her work not mine um, so she I think is, is really thinking about um, time in, in really interesting ways time and community uh, time and um, Uh, a range of environmental issues, including now extinction. Um, But what I'm trying to do there, as I I guess I gestured to a a moment ago, is to think about this, the the radical difference between the millions of year history of speciation uh, of something like the albatross and the very short uh, period of time in which we can undo that history. Uh, And partly I was drawn to to think about that by a, a comment that was made far too often, I think, um, by journalists, by colleagues um, who point to the fact that extinction is something that now uh, that we now know since Darwin is an, an unavoidable um, part of the, the, the life of a species. All species will go extinct. We know that 99.9% of those that have ever lived have gone extinct. Uh, and so in the grand scheme of things, why does extinction matter? Um, and I'm not happy with the kind of answer that we get from a lot of environmental philosophers, which is to say that um, I think Holmes Rolston III put it um, most succinctly when he said that um, that a kind of a natural extinction would be uh, like um, like death from natural causes, uh, but a human induced extinction is like murder, um, and so uh, we ought to object to extinction on those grounds. And I think for obvious reasons for those people who are working in kind of STS frames or working with um, eco-feminist philosophy and critical of dualisms. I think that this kind of fast, hard and fast distinction between humans as agents um, and, and the natural world is problematic. So I was trying to think uh, about what it is that I'm objecting to in extinction uh, in other terms. Mm-hmm. Um, and the
0: non-human, sorry, the non-human is entering into our conversation. Uh, that's the New Books Network seminar cat who's um, trying to get a word in edgewise. Yeah. So <laughs> apologies for that, but go on. You were talking so about um, the, what you were trying to do with extinction.
1: So I guess the, the temporality thing was was a way of thinking for me about um, what's wrong with that kind of question about why we don't just accept extinction as a nat- as a, a natural phenomenon. Um and for me it's about it's about um temporal scale and it's about taking that view from nowhere uh, and saying extinction happens all the time therefore there's nothing wrong with it. Um in the grand scheme from the perspective of life or evolution or whoever that the agent is imagined to be um extinction is not consequential. And I don't think that's really very helpful. So the the more situated take uh, that I'm trying to offer in the book um about Entanglements about the way in which different species matter about what unravels uh, how worlds unravel with, uh, in the context of extinction it can all just be presented as change that the world is changing but it's it's highly consequential change and so being um, mindful of uh, how a particular extinction matters, um, I think is important, uh, but also being mindful of our own situatedness, that um, we ought not to adopt the position from nowhere, uh, the view from nowhere, and just say extinction is a natural phenomenon. Um, instead, what, what does extinction mean for this community of humans and non-humans now who will actually live through it? How does it impoverish worlds for those to come? Um, from the perspective of, of our own species, co-evolved with a lot of these uh, organisms uh, in different ways. So they might be our companion species, thinking with Haraway. Um, these extinctions are really consequential, and so I think we have to, to refuse that view from nowhere uh, and adopt the more uh, short term, um, time frames of our own species or even of our own uh, cultures or, or of us as individuals and think about uh, how, what extinction means from those temporal scales.
0: Now this issue of entanglement is explored even further when we move into the second chapter of the book, and this is a chapter that looks carefully at the entanglements of vultures with people, cows, and others in India. Now entanglements here are not just... Um, of the human and non-human, but also of the living and the dead in really interesting ways. So in India, vulture species are rapidly approaching extinction. Um, For listeners who don't know um, very much about this particular case in this particular context, could you maybe say a little bit about that before we then move on to talk about um, some of the other issues happening in this chapter?
1: Yeah, um, I'll try and be be brief. Um, The it seems that the vultures were being poisoned by an anti-inflammatory drug uh, called uh, diclofenac that was given to cattle. Um, it's good for cattle, but um, when the cattle die and are consumed by vultures, um, it causes all sorts of problems for the vultures and eventually death. So um, this was going, went on for several decades while uh, biologists, well, until it was even noticed that the, the uh, vultures were declining, uh, and then for another decade or so afterwards with an effort to determine what was the cause. <clears throat> so um, uh, once this was found, um, uh, uh, eventually a ban was put in on, on the drug, but um, uh, by that stage already estimates vary, but probably somewhere around 97%, 99% of the vultures, the, the gyps, vultures of the genus gyps in um, in India had already died. So there is an ongoing conservation project there, and and perhaps um, those species are beginning to do a bit better. Um, But it was an incredible um, impact on um, what was once the most abundant bird of prey in the world. Um, Those populations just plummeted, and with all of these knock-on ecological uh, effects.
0: Now, You talk about um, the importance of this poisoning in part coming from the fact that vultures are eating cows because uh, vultures are such an important part of the ecology of dealing with death in this context. So in some communities in India, as as this chapter of the book describes, vultures are actually relied upon to consume the dead, and that's both non-human, so cows, but also human dead. Can you talk a little bit about this aspect of vultures as part of this um, in series of entanglements of life and death in this context.
1: Yeah, well, I'd, as you said a moment ago, I was, was trying to think about communities of the human and the non-human, the living and the dead, um, and to think about how they are held together through, um, well, I don't, I don't think about it in terms of labor in that chapter, but through the work of, um, or the activities, the lives of of different Beings, um, and so then again, how those communities might unravel, uh, when certain members are, uh, um, cut out. So in this particular case, yeah, the, the, Absence of vultures is thought to have led to an increase in uh, numbers of stray dogs and possibly rats uh, who are consuming the carcasses, cattle carcasses, that um, that the vultures once would have eaten, um, which is thought to be leading to increases in things like rabies, um, possibly plague, uh, other diseases, um, anthrax, uh, that the vultures once did a, a much better job of containing. And so all of those diseases have... Um, knock-on effects, obviously they are, can be contracted by people um, and India, India is home to two-thirds of the world's rabies deaths uh, so that is not insignificant Um and then, of course, there are impacts for the more than human world, uh, in terms of the, in that these dog, extra dogs, for example, may be spreading canine parvovirus and other viruses to endangered species, uh, like the Asiatic lion and uh, a range of other, uh, other animals. So, yeah, I was really th- thinking about how the absence of vultures, um, ripples out into the world, um, to impact on a whole range of others.
0: Now, the chapter introduces the idea of the dull edge of extinction as a way to understand what's happening with the vultures. Can you talk a little bit about that concept?
1: Yeah, that, well, that, I guess, is what I've just been been hinting at in a way, but I was trying to give it a name, um, to to move away from thinking about extinction as this singular phenomenon of the death of the last individual. And we get these very iconic representations of Martha, the passenger pigeon uh, dying in the Cincinnati zoo and think that this is what extinction is, that, that we can identify the point at which it happens uh, and, and narrow it down really to the death of that last individual. Um, but, by looking at all of these um, knock-on effects, if you like, and with the the vultures, um, these kinds of ecological impacts and and the the cultural and religious impacts that I haven't mentioned yet, that uh, for example, the breakdown of the Parsi funerary system where the the Parsis have traditionally um, exposed their dead to vultures and that system has become virtually impossible in the, uh, in the absence of vultures. Um, So all of those kinds of knock-ons, ecological, cultural, to use these big crude categories, um, Ripple out into the world and they begin well before the death of the last individual um, And they continue long afterwards So rather than thinking about extinction as a sort of short sharp uh, phenomenon uh, I'm encouraging us to think about it as a a long drawn out unraveling That that remakes worlds in ways that we are often not uh, fully mindful of
0: Thank you so much Now as we move into the next chapter we move into the next case study And this is a chapter that explores the story of a little community of little penguins that live just inside the mouth of Sydney Harbor. Now, as you um, tell us in this chapter, this is one of the last penguin colonies left on the Australian mainland. And eight months out of the year, they return to this harbor to lay eggs and to fledge their young. In this way, they have a strong sense of what you call here site fidelity or philopatry. So, because this is going to become important um, a little later on in this chapter, can you talk a little bit about um, this notion of site fidelity as it shapes this particular community of little penguins?
1: Yeah. Um, so, this was a, um, as you said, a, a sort of a Sydney moment. It was an opportunity to do some. To do some field work closer to home um, and uh, I've, I've always been uh, interested in the well since I found out about them which wasn't that long ago uh, in the fact that there were these little penguins living under uh, a very busy ferry wharf and, and in other places uh, within Sydney Harbour that most people don't know about and um, they sort of go about their lives quietly um, so I was interested in their relationship to that particular place um, and Mostly thinking through this the work on, on storying place, uh, and on the way that we might think about, uh, work that's been done largely focused on the way that human communities and human individuals, uh, make sense of place and develop place attachments, uh, through lived histories, through ways of, of understanding and, um, ascribing value and meaning to particular places. Um, the, this idea from people like Ed Casey's work that, um, that amorphous, um, well, you wouldn't want to think about it in exactly these terms. So let's just say, in general terms, to avoid a technical <laughs> conversation, um, that something like um, an amorphous space, um, a geolog- geogra- sorry, a um, the word um, empty space, let's call it, is um, is rendered meaningful through these lived experiences. So the chapter is an effort to think about uh, how various non-humans might story place. Uh, and obviously the penguins are the are the key uh, example, but we might apply that kind of thinking uh, to a whole range of species that have consequential relationships with their places and, and so are tied to them. In different ways, and in the particular case of the penguins, it's this notion of, of philopatry uh, of returning to um, to the place in which a, uh, a bird was hatched to itself reproduce when it reaches sexual maturity, uh, and those places are not at all exchangeable um, for. Uh, we interchangeable for uh, penguins. They uh, are sort of deeply tied to these places, and so as this landscape changes in Sydney, as it becomes more and more developed, uh, I was interested in how how we think about that, but also how um, the penguins are sort of excluded from these places that are so consequential to them.
0: That's great. and the chapter has at the same time very moving. And really adorable. Yeah. I mean, really, um, it makes these penguins into objects that we I want to adore, right? Um, in, in this chapter, in mean, the descriptions that you give here, um, as a result of this disappearing of their burrows due, due to urban development, you describe um, seawalls that are put up, right, that keep them from reaching their burrows. Now, to reach their sites, um, to give listeners a sense of the complications here, these little penguins, okay, these really, really small penguins, and they're they're technically called little penguins, right? That's their name. That's right. yeah. They go so far as to waddle across a beach, go up a flight of stairs, along the street, down another flight of stairs, and under houses. And these are penguins doing all of this. And so you can kind of imagine the process there. And you talk about people complaining about their nightly 3 a.m. parties on the beach. Um, and it's just this this beautiful moment of, of, at the same time, kind of hilarity and also a deeply moving sense of loss um, that I think the stories of these penguins and your description of them really brings us into.
1: Yeah, well, that's good. I'm glad the description works.
0: Oh, definitely. Very, very much so. It's very um, evocative. But also, again, it's not just... Um, kind of uh, mo- it's not just kind of uh, amusing but also very very moving now you talked about the importance of understanding and the opportunities that come from understanding um, the non-human and, and every time I say that word I get a little bit of a twinge because you know the book is not trying to create this dyadic sense of human and non-human so I want listeners to know when I say non-human it's not because there's a kind of polarity in the book that encourages that it's just my clumsy use of terminology here. But um, this sort of this idea of the more than human, I think you put it, or um, yes. creatures, organisms of all sorts, storying places, this is not just about our opportunities for thinking in that way, but also our obligations. So what kinds of ethical obligations, I think the chapter asks, might accompany this understanding of storytelling and placemaking as capabilities of penguins and other Um, Not humans, organisms, um, non-humans more than humans. Can you talk a little bit about that, the ethical implications and the ethical obligations that might come from understanding placemaking in this more capacious and encompassing way?
1: Yeah, well, that was really what started me down the track of, of thinking about this. Um, I, I heard from several people while I was doing interviews out, out in the, this part of, uh, of Sydney Harbour talking to locals. There was a lot of resentment, not not from all of them. There are a lot of really great people who love penguins in, in that part of, of uh, Sydney, but there were others who really resented the um, the noise, who resented the, the fact that they had to keep their dog on a leash. Um, all these kinds of um these kinds of things that, that make human um human penguin especially interaction so difficult. Um and but there was a general sense that, that the birds could just go somewhere else. And that was really what I was responding to. Um this tendency to think about places largely interchangeable for uh, for non humans. Um I also am worried about the term non humans, but we'll continue to, to use it for convenience sake. Um, So um, this idea of habitat, I think, is really important here in that it's the main way that we really think about uh, the relationship between a species and and particular kinds of places. We say that they um, have particular habitat uh, that is basically a a general set of... um, of conditions that are required, that it be a particular temperature, that there be particular kinds of um, perhaps foliage or ecosystem um, diversity present for them to eat and to, to nest and so on. Um, so we get this kind of checklist of um, requirements that, that equal appropriate habitat for a species. We never get anything Anything like a sense of uh, a, an attachment to a particular place, uh, so that it matters for these penguins that they return to this part of the harbour, not to some other part that would be more convenient for people. And that this notion of philopatry, which is literally the, the love of place, love of one's home, um, which is the term that the biologists use for thinking about um, this return to to one's natal place. Um, that is another term in biology, I suppose, that I was trying to to present um, uh, to think uh, to think about attachment uh, beyond the sort of simplistic requirements of habit of appropriate habitat, and I sort of failed to answer your question there. But, but so my, my then my question for myself is: What kind of uh, different ethical obligations does does thinking place differently like this open up? So I think. The richer sense of, of how place matters to penguins that it can't just be exchanged like that. That what happens when penguins lose places, uh, lose their burrows, is that they keep pushing for them, uh, and often they keep going back to them even though they're no longer appropriate, and they fail to reproduce, uh, and so we end up with a, a smaller and smaller population until extinction happens. So that the the work of of something seemingly so simple as putting up a seawall is really extinction work. Um, and that understanding place in this richer way uh, helps us to understand the significance of that kind of act.
0: Now, talking about population numbers, um, concern with population numbers, this is very much a concern as well that um, comes up in Chapter 4. Now, Chapter 4 looks at North American conservation programs that are devoted to whooping creams. The work of conservationists in the U.S., and also in Canada to protect cranes and to teach them to migrate south is explored here in really wonderful ways. Um, and you talk here specifically about Operation Migration. Now, this is a very intensive captive breeding and release program that in many ways has been very successful. So can you maybe bring us into this chapter by talking about Operation Migration and talking a little bit about your own fieldwork? Um, that went into this chapter and that you, I think, describe as well um, uh, early in, this, in its pages.
1: Yeah, so um, Operation Migration, I guess, are one part of a, of a big program. They handle the uh, the ultralight-led migration, so the, the birds being, um, once they reach a certain age. Uh, and, and all of that breeding is done by two other organizations, the Patuxent Wildlife um, Research Centre which is part of the US Geological Survey uh, and the uh, International Crane Foundation um, and so they're also very important partners in in all of this um, captive breeding uh, but then some of those birds um, then get uh, sent off to Operation Migration uh, where they're taught to to follow an ultralight uh, aircraft to learn this this lost migratory route in the effort to establish a second uh, free-living population of whooping cranes in North America. Um, so this would be a migratory route from Wisconsin to Florida, uh, in addition to the one that already exists from from um, up in the north of Canada down to the Gulf Coast of Texas. So, um, yeah, I was really interested in in that whole... Program, the whole effort to um, to create this new eastern migratory population, um, to breed cranes in captivity, to get them to follow a plane. Um, and uh, in particular, I guess I'm, I'm probably pre empting your next question here. You
0: know, I was, I was <laughs> it's okay.
1: interested in the the, the violence uh, uh, that goes into the, the care, the intimate care for, of these birds.
0: Mm-hmm. So what was, um, you, you described, so we'll get to violent care in a moment, absolutely, but you described um, at some point in this chapter dressing up in a costume and, um, you know, sitting with someone who had a puppet um, that was a crane's head. What was your ethnographic research um, in Wisconsin like when you were researching this chapter?
1: Well, this oddly was sort of one of the chapters I did the least Um uh, I spent the least time doing ethnographic research. I spent a, pr- about a week um, traveling around um, Wisconsin and, um, um, oh, gosh, my U.S. Uh, geography is terrible. Uh, it was mine. Just outside D.C. Let's, uh, <laughs> we're we're, we're uh, Maryland. Um, and um, talking to people there about um, about cranes, interviewing people at, at each of those different organizations. Um, and um, so the ethnographic work that is, that is much less visible, I guess, in a lot of the other chapters was was more substantial. Um, but I really, uh, the experience of uh, of dressing up in, all in white um, and walking amongst these cranes was really so surreal that I, I really wanted to write about it. And um, it's in large part, as I described in the chapter, it's because the, these captive birds that are going to be released, uh, they don't want them habituated to... People. They certainly don't want just them to associate people with food and safety. Um, so everybody who is seen by them has to be dressed fully in white and ideally carrying one of these crane puppets that they interact with the birds with um, as an alternative head. Um, and then often... Often people will carry these small recorders that, uh, that play um, comforting parental vocalisation sounds for the chicks. But in in my experience, um, I dressed up a couple of times in different places, but the, the one I described in the chapter um, was with the Operation Migration folks, um, and we were in an, out, an outdoor pen with birds who were well into their training for uh, following the, the plane uh, and it was just really surreal it was in, incredibly hot um, and the costumes were so stifling that we had to be completely silent uh, we had to move slowly and carefully uh, and so it became almost meditative um, sort of and the birds who uh, came up and um, exploring and, um, and pecking at us with their beaks a little bit and following us around as they would follow their parents. and um, It was very uh, a very odd experience. Um, so I felt like it, it framed the, the oddness of this whole um, conservation program really well.
0: And the oddness is expressed here, um, at least in part, in terms of something that's now going to super surprise you that I'm asking you about. Get ready. Mm -hmm. Violent care. I know this is a surprise. (laughs) You you talk about the cranes in terms of this uh, regimes of violent care. So can you maybe talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, well that uh, I guess I should. I, I always want to preface this uh, by saying that I have the utmost respect for all of the people involved in this program. And I think by the end of the chapter, I, I think it, it is clear to any reader that I, I'm largely supportive of what they're doing. I think um, I think things could be done slightly differently, but I uh, but I'm largely supportive of the of the project. But I I I always ask the people who I interview to to read. Chapters, and this was the one chapter where some, not not all of the people I interviewed, um, had had real problems with the way they were being presented, and and a big part of the problem I think was that just this word violence, um, they really didn't want to think about their practices as violent at all, um, and for me that was really inescapable. So so they are definitely intimate and caring practices um where people invest their whole lives um and often a lot of their own money in uh in trying to keep these the species in the world a real commitment to the species uh, but also to the individual birds and those things are not always the same thing and that's another one of the tensions i'm exploring in that chapter um so there is an awful lot of care there, but the, the care is often um, required, or just uh, is much easier, or, or only possible with give, with the current funding uh, to do things in particular ways that are that are also uh, violent, uh, that are also um, impact on on the individual birds, um, whether it's. Um, Uh, holding them down for artificial insemination or just keeping birds captive uh, for their whole lives whooping cranes but also a range of other birds like sandhill cranes that are also kept captive so they can be incubators for whooping crane eggs for a period of the year Uh, so there's all of this captive um, life that goes into the maintenance of the species that goes into what is in many ways a caring uh, conservation program and I wanted to draw that
0: out I mean, the chapter does, I think, a really um, excellent job in showing these ethical implications, right? And exploring these problems. And then not necessarily saying, here's the right answer, here's the wrong answer, but I'm mean, really explicitly exploring Haraway's notion of staying with the trouble, right? Staying in the problem, staying with the trouble, staying with the problem to really explore and think about and try to understand these ethical implications without necessarily claiming that there is a clear way to solve the problems and that even thinking of it in terms of solving problems um, makes any sense, right? So I, I think the chapter is really, really clear about that, um, that sort of problems are part of the point, right? And thinking yeah. through and dwelling in the problems is part of what it seems like you're asking us to do here.
1: Yeah, I think that that was my hope behind behind looking at, at the violence that goes on in caring practices uh, is to think about how we might do things better. Uh, if if we recognise this as violence, um, what does it prompt us to do to to rethink the way that we're doing these things to maybe make them less violent in certain ways, uh, or just to own up to that violence? And I think that for me and the really celebra- celebratory. Um, images of whooping cranes flying behind ultralight aircrafts, and I couldn't help but put one of those images on the cover of the book. um, I think they're beautiful images, Um, but they are so often couched in this kind of um, certainly celebratory but also salvational kind of language where humans and their technology are, are setting the world to rights, um, making up for you know all of these impacts, helping this to keep this species in the world, um, but that the the um, behind the scenes work that produces that possibility of cranes following an ultralight is incredibly violent also. Uh, And once we allow that violence to slip out of frame I think it becomes a lot easier to uh, support these kinds of um, captive breeding programs of various sorts um, because we're, we're not really clear on what the stakes are.
0: I mean sometimes it's not about thinking that we are necessarily empowered enough to solve a problem or find the answer, but it's about understanding the stakes and understanding the consequences and understanding the problems and finding a, a way to move forward in an informed and caring way while in the, being in the process of negotiating that. You know? yeah. um, so in the final chapter um, before the epilogue, we move from this context in which um, we're exploring ideas of violent care and exploring the whooping creams. To exploring a different group of beings, of animals, of birds, and this is a group of Hawaiian crows. Now, Hawaiian crows only survive in captivity. The last free-living crow died in 2002. Um, Now, the crows now only survive in captivity um, in part due to a lot of factors that you describe here in the chapter, and those factors include um, forest degradation, increased predation, diseases um, that are relatively new for that group. And the chapter opens with an account of one of these Hawaiian crows crying out at the death of its partner. So this becomes a chapter that from the very beginning, from from the very epigraph of the text, is all about crying and mourning um, and grieving. Now the chapter considers how crows mourn, how they respond to the death of others of their kind. Um, can you talk about this a little bit? What does it mean and what are the consequences for us when we take crows mourning seriously as, a, as part of the overall general um, category of mourning behavior? So it's more simply put, what does it mean for us and what can it mean for us to ask if crows mourn?
1: yeah well I, this chapter i guess philosophically was is, is trying to think about death differently um, to move away from uh, a lot of the emphasis in death on this what um francoois has called the phenomenology, phenomenology of mortality to think about. I mean, I guess Hardica is the most famous example to think about um, being towards death, um, and to think about what is exceptional and unique about the human uh, in terms of its um, its own orientation towards or understanding of its own death. Um, and so, I think that this has been, so death has played this role in Western philosophy often of setting up a, a divide between the human and the animal. Um, so by going to mourning instead of death, uh, in this more phenomenological sense, um, by looking at mourning, I was trying to think otherwise about about death, um, and to think about a kind of continuity between humans and a whole range of other social mammals and birds, uh, and maybe others uh, who also mourn. And there's a lot of resistance to thinking, to calling that mourning, um, amongst many biologists, there's... A, they're happy sometimes to call it grief, uh, mourning. A lot of them want to keep just for humans. Um, mm. So there's a, there are a lot of questions there about um, whether and to what extent uh, other animals understand death and so mourn properly or fully. Um, but it's clear that there is, um, there is grieving going on for a lot of these species when they lose certain others. Um, and, So, the the effort is to think about a kind of evolutionary continuity, um, how we we share to some extent our capacity to mourn with others as a result of our our, um, evolutionary relatedness, Uh, but then also how there's an ecological, uh, how mourning draws us into ecological relationships with others, Um, how mourning. It exposes the way in which uh, we are at stake in others. And so to mourn is to, uh, to acknowledge in some sense more or less conscious, consciously that we have been remade by the loss of another. Uh, and so to mourn uh, for other than humans, um, to acknowledge how other than humans themselves mourn, is to um, to be implicated in a world of um, ecological relationships as well, or at least it could be. And that's what the, the chapter is trying to work through. With, with, I should say, just very briefly, because I, I, I jumped in with Heidegger instead of saying anything about the Hawaiian crows themselves, um, that the, the Hawaiian crows are incredibly beautiful birds and um uh, and so the, the chapter was also motivated by a desire to, to spend time with them and to think more, to think seriously about their plight.
0: And the chapter actually makes the point quite explicitly that taking the mourning and the grief of non-humans seriously may actually help undo our tendency toward human exceptionalism. And This, um, this is a, a phrase, human exceptionalism, that recurs at several points throughout the book, and it really seems... To be uh, at least one important concern of the book as a whole.
1: Yeah, yeah, I borrow that um, phrase from from Val Plumwood, um, and yeah, it's, it, it, this is really what a lot of the entanglements, the the uh, effort to think about mourning, um, to think about evolutionary relatedness, is all about resituating the human in ecological, in evolutionary uh, terms, uh, thinking about how uh, I think Anna Singh has put it most beautifully uh, recently to think about how human nature is an interspecies relation i think she says or an interspecies project um uh, and so the the effort to to de-center the specialness uh, to to de-center the human and to rethink their this their the notion that humanity is somehow special and set a, set aside
0: now you call um the chapter itself an act of mourning what is what do you mean by that?
1: Um, well, I, I guess it's um, as with all of the stories in the book, I'm thinking about them as a kind of performative ethics, um, and so the I didn't want to just write a chapter about mourning. I wanted the chapter to itself be an, an act of mourning, um, and uh, a part of part of what mourning is is, of course, storytelling is the way that we um, re-situate ourselves in the world uh, or relearn the world in Thomas Addicts' terms. Um, after the event of a loss, um, and so storytelling is always has always been, is, will always be, I imagine, um, intimately bound up with mourning. Um, so this is an effort to to tell uh, a story about mourning uh, itself as an act of mourning, um, partly to work out some of my own um, issues, um, but partly also because um, I think that witnessing is such a, a powerful concept here and I, um, there's a little bit of hopelessness in it for me and um, but there's uh, I feel that there's an important ethical work that is done in the act of bearing witness to extinction so even if if my book has no impact on the world um, even if if all of the other work that we do on extinction doesn't turn the tide and we continue to lose all of these species i think there's something important uh, that's done in the in the work of telling their stories uh, in the work of giving them some sort of presence in the world and in the work of trying to um to articulate what is wrong with what's going on here, uh, as an act of witness uh, that may have no um, world-changing consequences, but is itself an ethical obligation.
0: Beautiful. Well, Tom, I think that's a really nice place for us to come to a conclusion here. Now, there's a lot about the book that we didn't have a chance to talk about. There's a lot of a lot of stories, a lot of ways that the chapters are really performing the importance of um, sort of situating any individual within a network of relationships and communities by being extraordinarily generous about the work of other colleagues and other scholars who you're weaving in, drawing from, and expanding um, from uh, in all of the chapters. And so it's one of the things, um, that kind of performance of generosity that I really appreciated among other things. But of course, there's a lot we didn't get to um, in all of these pages. Is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about but that you'd like to mention for listeners?
1: um i guess um, one thing that that may be of interest to to listeners who are interested in in this book um, is the extinction studies working group um, and we have a, a website um, at extinctionstudies.org and a lot of the people you just mentioned um who are, whose ideas i'm I'm working with who I'm have been in conversation with for years on these things um, are also members of that group um, and uh, pe- people like Debbie rose who's Beautiful recent book, Wild Dog Dreaming, Love and Extinction. I think is another great, um, uh, another great book in this in this area. And uh, Evan Kirksey's recent um, book, Multi- the Multi Species Salon. Um, but there's a whole range of other uh, great projects, and there's really a group of people trying to think about what the humanities uh, and, to some extent, the social sciences have to to offer in thinking through extinction. So I would direct people there. I guess.
0: Thank you. So now that the book is out, and congratulations on the book, what's next for you? What are you working on now?
1: I'm I'm already uh, two chapters into the next book, um, which is um, something that I'm really enjoying, and I've just managed to get some funding to... um, to allow me to do field work Around the world in six, six different sites Looking at human-crow relationships So in a way the, the, My current book picks up directly From the last chapter of, um, of Flightways um, with the Hawaiian Crows and the Hawaiian crow is, is One of these six crows um, And there are five others and I'm, I'm Really just thinking about uh, They're not all um, endangered Some of them are crows that are thought to be Overabundant and that are being culled um, So the Extinction is still really a central theme, but I'm also thinking more broadly about what wildlife management is or might, and might be, um, and our relationships with a whole range of different um, corvids as as a way of thinking about uh, broader issues of um, multi-species community in uh, in the Anthropocene. Whether you love or hate that term. Um, so that's the, the current project and I've um, been working on the Hawaiian crow again and, the, and some, some beautiful Indian house crows living in the Netherlands who are I think if they're not all dead now they will be very soon the, um, the Dutch government uh, have given the order to have them all killed um, so that, that has been my, um, my latest uh, project and I'm really looking forward to taking up crow stories in other places
0: Well, best of luck with that research, um, and I hope you have wonderful travels and wonderful trips in the course of doing that work as well. And thank you so much for making time to talk with me about this book. I really enjoyed it, and it's an amazing book, so thank you.
1: Well, thank you so much, Carla, for taking the time to to read it and talk about it and, and share it with others. It's great to talk to you.
0: You've been listening to the New Books Network Seminar. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.